You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. It's usually at this moment that uh, I would say, He is risen, and then you would respond, He is risen indeed. So, I don't see any reason to change anything now just because we're spread out and in our homes. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. It's good to have you this morning. And uh, I've, I've thought a lot this week about what Easter Resurrection Sunday would be like in this format. And, and you know, um, while I would much rather prefer to have you here together, and let me add to that, I, I miss you guys. I miss seeing you every week. I miss uh, shaking your hands and seeing you at the side door and hearing what God's doing in your life uh, as you've came and came out of this building. So I want you to know that I miss you. I miss seeing you. But on the other side of that, uh, I recognize that uh, technology has given us some tremendous, tremendous opportunity. I, uh, somewhere down the road when things get back to whatever normal is going to look like, I'll share with you some of the impact that these videos have had. Uh, it's incredible the, the amount of reach that we've been able to have with our worship services and, and with some of the devotionals we've been doing during the week, with what we did Thursday night. Uh, it's just incredible how many people are engaging uh, in, in that online uh, material that we've been putting out because of necessity. So. It's incredible. And also, uh, what better time to celebrate uh, the greatest hope the world has ever had than right in the middle of a global pandemic? What, what better time to, to celebrate, remember, uh, to, to really, really settle down into what it means to follow a resurrected king than right in the middle of this global event that we've been dealing with for the last several weeks? If you will have your Bibles or your apps, if you would just turn to John chapter 21. I want to read starting at verse 15. And then what we're going to do is I want to, I want to set the, the table or kind of set the background on, on what's happening here. This is not a, a typical uh, Resurrection Sunday text, although it is post-resurrection. What I want to focus in on today is how that Jesus took the time post-resurrection after he's resurrected and and he, he's, he's equipping the disciples, and he's going to spend 40 days with them. I want you to notice how he takes time to spend with Peter, specifically why he did that and what led up to that. Because I think it's, it's not only important, obviously, because it's, in, it's included in John's narrative, but it, it's important for where you find yourself this morning and the struggles that you're dealing with and the hope that can be found through the restoration that is found in Christ alone. So John chapter 21, take a look at verse 15 and following, and then we'll go back and kind of set uh, the basis for what's going on here. It says in verse 15, it says, When they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Peter's reply is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. And then Jesus says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, Peter, follow me. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the reality, the truth, the concrete truth that Jesus dead for three days in a tomb, a borrowed tomb for three days, walked out of that tomb completely alive. Father, it's, it's not a fable. Father, it's not some story made up by the disciples. It is fact that can be examined by all those who are skeptical of what we're celebrating this morning. Father, in that moment, in that time, you work the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. And that miracle, that work, that resurrection, that empty tomb was not just something that happened back there. But Father, it's something that has profound impact on us right now, today, in the middle of a pandemic. Father, it's not something that's just relegated to the past that we're going to be nostalgic about this morning. It's something that, that impacts us right now, where we stand, where we sit, in our homes, with our families, in our, in our marriages, and all the stress that we've been through over the last few weeks. Father, it impacts us right where we are right now. So, Father, we celebrate not just with nostalgia, but we celebrate because of the new life that we have found in Jesus Christ, the resurrected, the righteous, the one who ascended back to the Father and sits in power and authority this morning. Thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you, Father, for all that you've been teaching us over the last few weeks. Through all of this difficulty, Father, you, you've been speaking very clearly and you've been doing things in our life that, Father, I don't know that could have been accomplished without all this going on. Father, we look forward to the end of it. We pray for all those that are suffering. We pray for all those families and states that have lost loved ones where this thing has really, really impacted those local communities. We pray and we ask for your comfort, for your peace, for your guidance, for your wisdom. And again, Father, thank you for all those who are running towards this pandemic to serve using the skills that you've given them to bring comfort, to bring healing to those who are in desperate need. We love you. We thank you. We seek your face this morning. We thank you for it all. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I told someone uh, this past week that uh, much like other big events that have happened in our life uh, and, and that has happened in the world that we've kind of gotten caught up in, is that once all this is done, and by the way, this is going to come to an end. I don't know what it is. Uh, but there, there's going to be a time where we're going to be through all of this and things are going to get back to some kind of new normal. But I told someone this week that I think for the rest of our lives, we're going to be talking about how things were before the pandemic, before COVID-19, and how things are now after that. I think, I think our world is going to be different after this. I think uh, there's things that are going to be done in a different way from now on. I think back to 9-11. To I think about what it was like to travel uh, in the airlines and go through airports before 
2001 and what it was like afterwards. And, and for those of us who remember that well and, and live through that, we know that the world was a different place, especially our country was a different place after 9-11. And we'll talk about how it was before, we'll talk about what happened during the event, and then we talk about what happens after. Uh, like many global events, given enough time, life kind of moves on and, and what used to be new and different becomes just part of our everyday routine. And eventually as life gets back into normalcy, even a new normal, as time goes on, the next thing you know, not many people will be talking about COVID-19 anymore. Uh, there'll be a time where either it's just part of, of what it means to live in our world or whether they have immunizations or whatever, but there will be a point in time where we won't, our lives won't be dictated the way they are today and staying home and trying to stay away from other people. There will be a time where all that will go away and there'll be some talk about it for probably a few years to come and then eventually five, 10, 15 years, it'll just be a distant memory, much like, believe it or not, much like 9-11 is. Even with 9-11, when we, we memorialize that every year in September, there's not much talk about it anymore throughout the year other than the time we lead up to those days in September. I, I believe that COVID-19 will eventually have the same, same trend. But, but what about Easter? What about, what about what Jesus accomplished? And, and all that we've been talking about this week, what I want you to understand is, is that that wasn't just some passing event that given enough time and given enough life that that, that thing just kind of died and went into the background. I mean, imagine this. Over 2,000 years have passed since Jesus resurrected from the grave and the church began, and yet to this day, there's probably not a day that goes by that somewhere in the world, some, in some country, maybe even a third world country where it's illegal to even talk about Christ, that every single day of the week of every year, somewhere, Jesus' name is being mentioned as someone shares the gospel. Jesus' name is being mentioned as someone prays. People are gathering in places, whether it be an apartment complex, where no more can 15 or 20 can gather because of, of uh, the government and, and the restrictions on Christianity, that in that room, Jesus is being exalted. That on a street corner somewhere, someone begins to share their testimony about who they were before they met Christ, and then what happened when they met Christ, and how that Christ has changed their life, and that the resurrection comes up over and over and over again, if anything. The farther we get away from the day of the resurrection, the more that Jesus is being talked about. Think about this. The technology and all the churches that are having to stream their services now. Imagine how much more Jesus and the resurrection is coming up this morning across the globe simply because of technology. Instead of it being confined in a building somewhere, that it is, that it is going forth across the internet and people all over the world this morning are hearing about the resurrection. If anything, the resurrection is being talked about more today than it was back then simply because of the technology that we have. You see, I call that the Easter effect or the resurrection effect, right? It's global. And it not only has the resurrection changed us as individuals who've put our faith in Jesus, but it changed the world. Did you know that that Christianity revolutionized healthcare. That no matter where you look, where whatever plague was happening on the earth, you would always find missionaries, Christians, and disciples who were helping those who were sick and dying 
the, the whole world has changed as a result of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament church. It has elevated the status and the dignity of women. Most of the time what you hear about Christianity is that it's anti-women. You look at history, you look at what the Bible teaches in the New Testament and the New Testament church, the exact opposite is true, that women have been elevated, their dignity, their place in the world, and, and, and their service to the world has been elevated far beyond what it was prior to the resurrection and to the New Testament church. It raises the bar on ethics and morality. What, what a family is supposed to look like and how family is supposed to function. We could go on and on and on. The point is, is no matter what the global pandemic is, no matter what happens that, that impacts the entire world, either directly or indirectly, there's only one thing that I can find that has lasted throughout time and throughout history and has grown and grown and grown and grown. And that is what happened on that Sunday morning that we celebrate today, the resurrection. The disciples could not have, have known the enormity of what was happening, right? They've been walking with Jesus for three years, but they could not have known the enormity of what's going to happen post-Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls and, and the New Testament church will be in it. They couldn't wrap their arms around it. And we see them struggling with, with Jesus' definition of his kingdom. And all of the chaos leading up to Jesus' death and, and then the shock of his resurrection, uh, Jesus, out of all that has happened and all that is going on, Jesus makes a point to meet with Peter of all people. And you know, Peter, he's kind of risen as the leader. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and, and, and Peter really takes on that, that leadership role of, of the 11 after the New Testament church begins. But, but Jesus takes the time, and not only with Peter, but also, if you remember, with Thomas in the upper room. He meets with Thomas. Thomas, the one who was doubting that Jesus had resurrected, and even said that unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe. Jesus made a point. To go directly to Thomas and say, here, Thomas, here are the wounds. If you need to put your hands on, then go right ahead. And, of course, G, uh, Thomas realizes just how wrong he was. Peter, Peter needs to meet with Jesus. Peter needs some time alone with Jesus. And, I, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But by, by the time we get to the end, there are four very important questions that I need to ask you. So I need, I need you to stick with me to the end because there are four questions that are going to come right out of this text. Four very important questions that I need to ask you that you're going to have to answer to yourself while you're sitting around the table at home. Maybe you got up this morning, you went ahead and put on your Easter dresses and your and all the stuff that you prepared for Easter. Maybe you got all that on this morning. Awesome. But at the end of this, I need you to really, really deal with the four questions I'm going to ask you. So how, why is it that Peter needs to meet with Jesus? Well, let's go back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I'm going to just briefly go over what happens here for the sake of time. So after the Garden of Gethsemane, after Jesus is praying in the garden, Judas leads some 200 soldiers and officers to arrest Jesus. Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. They arrest him. The beating and the abuse begins. Jesus is going to have to endure six trials. As they take Jesus to this first meeting with Annas, John and Peter, the Bible says, follow at a distance. The rest of the disciples are scattered. Jesus is now being led in shackles to a courtyard. And in that courtyard that is walled off, there's a gated entrance to get into this area, but it is the, the dwelling place of the high priest. 
is a large complex. It has a center courtyard. On one side of that courtyard is the residence of Annas. Annas is not the high priest, but he's the father-in-law to the African high priest. Annas was a high priest for several years, and he is probably one of the most respected Jewish religious leaders of his day. He still has tremendous amount of influence. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, lives in the same compound. So the first thing they do is they take Jesus to Annas, and they take him inside the courtyard, into Annas' household, and Peter and John want to get inside. They want to, they want to see what's going on, but it says here in verse, 30, or verse 15 of chapter 18, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, which is John. And that disciple was known to the high priest, and he, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside. John had a connection to the high priest, and he was able to enter into the courtyard without any issues. But Peter couldn't enter. So, so John works it out where Peter can come into the inner courtyard, and while Peter is in that courtyard, he goes in, and, and the people inside that courtyard have made a fire out of coal. But before Peter makes it through the gate, there's a, a servant girl there. And this servant girl, in verse 17, says this, says, you, you also... Or one of this man's disciples, are you not? This young girl recognizes Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. Peter's response, I am not. They go on into the courtyard, and they've got a charcoal fire in, in the center of the courtyard where people are warming themselves. Peter's trying to listen in to what's going on inside Annas' household, inside the, the inner area of his home. And John is somewhere in the courtyard, maybe a little closer, trying to listen to what's going on to the trial. And then someone else approaches Peter in verse 25, and it says, while Peter's warming himself by the fire, he says, you're not one of the disciples, are you? Someone else recognizes Peter. It says, you're, you're one of his followers. The guy that's in there that's, that's being shackled and, and abused, you're one of his followers. And what is Peter's response? He says, I am not. A little while later, don't know how much time passes. Verse 26 says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose Peter ear had, Peter's, who had Peter had cut off his ear, to try to get that out. In the garden, where the officers approached Jesus, one of the servants of the high priest was a guy by the name of Malchus. Uh, Peter pulls out his sword, strikes this servant, and of course Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman, the sword glances off of his head and cuts the guy's ear off. Jesus actually heals the guy right there in the garden. One of the buddies, one of the relatives of that guy happens to be in the courtyard, and he looks at Peter and says, now I know you're one of those guys. I know you're one of Jesus' disciples. I know what you did in the garden. And notice what Peter says. He says, did I not see you in the garden with him and Peter again? denied it and the rooster crowed. If you know about the story, Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And Peter adamantly denied this. Peter, Peter said, even if I have to go with you to death, I will never betray you. I will never turn my back on you. And all the other disciples agreed right with him. And at this moment, Peter has completely denied even knowing Jesus whom he's just spent the last three plus years with, seen all the miracles, and adamantly said that he would never deny Jesus. The other gospel accounts say that at this moment, Peter runs off into the darkness, ashamed of what he's done. 
One of the gospel accounts seems to indicate that at the moment, Peter denies that third time that his eyes and Jesus' eyes lock. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine in that moment the, the shame that Peter felt? Can you imagine the brokenness that he felt? Can you imagine this guy who Jesus said would be the rock of the New Testament church has denied even knowing his own master? Peter, in all of his boldness, in all of his big words, in this moment, you know what Peter does? Peter goes into self-preservation mode. Peter's only thinking about himself. And, and honestly, honestly, I think if we'll be transparent long enough to admit it, that if we were in the courtyard with Peter being accused of being one of his disciples at the very moment we know Jesus is being tried and very well may be put to death and we can join him in that death, I think we could all admit that we would have probably reacted the same. As a matter of fact, more than likely we've already reacted the same. When you are in a situation where someone is mocking your faith, maybe on your job site, maybe online, someone is mocking your faith and says, somebody goes, hey, why don't you join into the conversation? Don't, don't you go to church? Don't, don't you, don't you follow Jesus? Well, you know, yeah, but I'm not really that big in the church. Or someone says, hey, you're, you're religious, aren't you? And maybe they make a joke about that. And, and instead of stepping forward and being bold about where you stand with Christ, we retreat into that corner and because of self-preservation and fear, we downplay. Or maybe maybe we join into the foolishness. Maybe we join into the big joke. Maybe maybe we join in in mocking someone else that's getting pointed out, pointed out as being religious. You see, I don't think we're too far removed from Peter, although we're not in a courtyard and we're not standing by a charcoal fire. I'm not so sure that we're not too far removed from him because I'm wondering how many times as disciples of Christ we've been extremely silent about that change he's made in our life. But now we see why Peter has to meet with Jesus. Turn back over to John chapter 21. So Peter... Peter is going to be that guy that Jesus has already said is going to be a, a foundational leader of the New Testament church, yet he's ran off into the night out of fear. Now, of course, with the resurrection, Peter is going to be reinvigorated with, with life that, that all that Jesus said about his death and burial and resurrection is exactly true. They see Jesus at least two times before this event, chapter 21. What's amazing to me about what happens here in chapter 21 is how much the story reads like it's the first time that Peter has seen Jesus resurrected. But I'm pretty sure, pretty confident that they've seen him at least two other times, maybe three, if you look at all the gospel accounts. So what's happening? Well, after the resurrection, this is probably about two weeks after the resurrection, G, uh, Peter in and some of the disciples, it says Thomas called the twin, this is verse 2, chapter 21, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other unnamed disciples, we don't know who they were, but, the, but they go up to Tiberias. Now Tiberias 
is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. It's referred to as the Lake or the Sea of Tiberias, but it's actually the Sea of Galilee. But they're on the west side of it, and this is all north of Jerusalem. And they go up there, and, and one, at one point, Peter looks at the other guys and says, hey, let's go fishing. And they go, okay, let's go. Now, there's been a lot made out of this. That's simply not in the text. That there have been people who have written both commentaries and devotionals who say, well, you know, Peter and the others, they've given up on this whole idea. They, they're going back to their old work. They're going back to their old profession. And I almost give the idea that, that these seven pretty much say, okay, well, we're done. You know, Jesus is resurrected and, and we're just going to move on and go back to our old life. And I don't see that at all. I don't see that. It's not in the text. What I do see is seven guys who probably need to earn a living. Remember, Judas was taking money out of the money bag for the disciples. He was skimming money off the top. I see some guys here that probably need to make a living, and they probably need to eat. I don't think them going fishing is any, and any idea that they're backing off from what, what God and what Christ had called them to do. I think they're simply going fishing to get something to eat and provide a living. And just as day was breaking, they've been out there all about fishing, all night long. Hadn't caught a thing. These are these are some of these guys are, are trained fishermen, but they have not caught one single fish all night long. And then in the early morning, well, there's a man on the shore. They're about a hundred yards out into the water. And there's a man on shore, and he yells out, "Hey, have you got any fish?" And they answered him, "No." Verse five, and then verse six, he says, "Hey, just cast the net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some." You know, they had this kind of same occurrence early in Jesus' ministry with them. Now, what is it about the right side of the boat that they're going to be able to catch fish, right? I mean, you're on, they've been cast on the left side, maybe. Hey, cast on the right side. What, what, what's so special about the right side of the boat? Well, if you, if you read commentaries and blogs, they say, well, it was easier to fish off the right side. It was easier to cast the nets off the right side. All kinds of theories about why there would have been fish. Let me tell you why there was fish on the right side of the boat. Because the God-man, Jesus Christ, said that there's going to be fish on the right-hand side of the boat. I think it's that simple. I think, I think the God-man who can, who can call creation into existence, Jesus Christ, both God and man, if he wants to position 153 fish on the right side of the boat, I think he can do that without any problem. I don't think there's a lot to speculate about here. Jesus is in full control as he's always been. So guess what? They cast the net over the right side of the boat, and they pull in 153 fish. They count them. And then John looks at Peter and says, Peter, I think that's Jesus. I think that's him. Peter, without anything, without any hesitation, jumps into the water, swims over 100 yards to get to shore to get to Jesus. Why do you think he's doing that? I think just as much as Jesus needed to see Peter, I think Peter needed to see Jesus. I think that all that happened at the empty tomb that morning when Peter and John ran to the empty tomb and and all that happened in the upper room when Jesus appeared, both with the disciples and then with Thomas, I think there's been that nagging, deep down stuff down in Peter's life where he's like, I really, really need to, to get along with Jesus. In Luke 24, it says that Jesus did have a meeting with Peter privately. We don't know what happened in that meeting. But I think there's still some things that need to be said between Peter and Jesus. And I believe that's why Jesus is seeking them out. And I think that's why Peter's jumping in the water and swimming all over shore. By the time the other men get to shore, 
Jesus has got a, a little campfire set up on the beach. Get this. He's got some, he's got a coal fire with fish on top of the fire and some bread. Now, there's an interesting detail. It's easy to really pass by, but the only places we find this reference in the New Testament of a coal fire, a fire with coal, is two places. Guess where, guess where we find it? Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, warming himself by a coal fire. And Jesus on the shore, as these men come ashore with this fish, as Peter's already gotten there, they sit down beside a coal fire to warm themselves. Do you think, do you think that's a coincidence? Do you, do you think that, that this is just some kind of happenstance that, that Jesus just happened to have some coal and he just happens to have a coal fire? Or is Jesus trying to make a statement here? Is he trying to take Peter back to that courtyard? And if he is, then what is Jesus trying to do in this particular moment? Well, I think you already know. Verse 15. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and I don't know if, if Peter and Jesus take a little walk here. It seems like that might be the case. Or if they've distanced themselves from the other disciples, because later on in verse 20, it seems as though they may have walked off from the rest of the disciples, or the disciples have walked off from them, and maybe they're still sitting around that fire. I'm not sure. But when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus starts a conversation here that's going to have a profound impact on Peter. I don't think at the first question, Peter gets where this is going yet. I don't think he, I don't think he understands the, the, the imagery of this coal fire. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Maybe he's connected to dots. Maybe he hasn't. We don't know. But in this first question, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, well, you're, you're going to feed my lambs. You're, you're going to be a shepherd, Peter. Now remember when Jesus called Peter, what did, he, what did he say to Peter? He says, come, and I will make you fishers of men. Now at the end, after Jesus is resurrected, he looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to shepherd my flock. But the only way that Peter is going to be able to shepherd that flock is if he is completely and utterly restored and not not tied to the past mistakes, the only way that Peter will be able to shepherd the flock and do what he's able to do in the book of Acts, almost immediately after Pentecost falls, Peter goes out and preaches a powerful message. And, and all along the first entire section of the book of Acts is Peter and John, Peter and John leading the church, impacting the church. How in the world are we going to get from Peter the denier to Peter the rock? How is that going to happen? How is it that Peter isn't just going to sink into a miry pit of his own faults and failures? Jesus says to him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, tend my sheep. Not only are you going to feed my sheep, but you're going to tend them. You're going to care for them. You're going to protect them. That, that's your calling, Peter. That's why you spent three plus years with me. I've been preparing you for this ministry that you're going to continue after I go back to the Father. He'd already told him that many times. Does Peter, does Peter recognize what's happening? I don't know. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But I know at this third statement, Peter recognizes it. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And here it is, Peter was grieved. Maybe at this moment, Peter realizes what's happening here. A coal fire. Jesus standing in front of him, asking him three times if he loves him. You know what happens with Peter? Peter is taken right back to that courtyard. Peter is taken right back to that courtyard. And he remembers every word that he said. He remembers every every confrontation that he had with those three people. He, he remembers he remembers the smells. He remembers he remembers everything that was being said. He remembers the temperature of the air. He remembers everything. Is that not how it is with your failures? Is it not how it is when you when you really mess up? When you think about it, when you go back, you can think of every possible thing that you felt and understood and, and experienced at that particular moment. Isn't it amazing how our past failures can have such an amazing impact on our present? For some of you, you've been trying for years to escape your past. You've been working really hard at it. That past failure or failures for many of you is just as fresh today as it was 25 years ago when it occurred. Going through rituals of religion gives you a little bit of inoculation for a period of time, right? You come to Sunday, Sunday school, you come to church, you, you sing some songs, you hear a sermon, and for a little while, you're able to forget that past, you're able to forget those failures. But as soon as you walk out of this building, as soon as you get back in your routine, not many days go by where you don't think about it. There's not many days that go by that you don't go right back to some of those attitudes and some of those same exact things that, that caused that failure to start with. As a matter of fact, some of you are still repeating the same failures. And you think that this is the best that life can be. Peter, in this moment, remembers every single detail of that night in that court. And that's why he's grieved. Because not only does he know what he did, but Jesus knows what he did. He, he knows, first of all, because he's God and he knows everything. But, but Jesus knows experimentally that Peter denied him, probably even heard the third one. And Jesus even predicted it. Now, it's at this point, Jesus would have had every right to say, Peter, you're done. <laughs> I'm glad that you love me, Peter. Um, I'm glad that, that, that you have that kind of love me. But really, Peter, you have now been disqualified. You're no longer the rock. I'm going to hand that off to John over here. It's no longer you. But let's think about that for a moment. We'll hand it off to John. John had some issues too. Matter of fact, there's none of the disciples of the 11 that are left that stuck with Jesus. John stuck with him to the cross. But if you look at John's life, there was all kinds of issues. That's why he was called all the sons of thunder. What about James? Well, James, he's got some temperament issues. Every one of these guys are broken, including Peter. And Jesus is taking the time to speak to Peter directly about this brokenness. He says, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And it's at that moment, it's at that moment, in those three questions, Peter's three responses, that Jesus moves on and talks about Peter's destiny. That Peter's destiny is going to be one that within his commitment to Christ and what he's going to do in the New Testament church, he is going to be martyred as a result of his faithfulness to Jesus. 
So at this moment, Peter has been restored. Everything is in the past. Jesus has certainly forgiven him and has given him a mission to be a shepherd of the New Testament church as that launches in just a few weeks from this conversation. There's some questions I want to ask you. And they're, they're really important questions. The first question I want to ask you is, do you believe that Jesus is alive? I mean, in, in, this, in this narrative, in this interaction between Jesus and Peter, <clears throat> we're not talking about Jesus a ghost. We're not talking about Jesus as though he's some kind of apparition. We're talking about Jesus who has a body that still has the wounds visible in his wrist, in his side, in his scalp, or the crown of thorns. It's, it's, a, it's a person, but he's, he's more than that. He's different, but he's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He is a bodily resurrected Jesus. And listen, this, these are objective facts, not subjective. This is not Peter having some kind of a dream. This is not John and them seeing some apparition on the shore. This is not some kind of ghost who's cooking fish. This is a bodily resurrected Jesus Christ, the Lord, sitting on a beach, objective truth. And that's important. It's incredibly important. If I had a, if I had a jar of marbles up here this morning, and I said, hey, guess how many marbles I've got in this jar? You, know, you might guess 100, you might guess 200. At some point, I'm going to say in this jar is 208 marbles. That is an objective fact. In other words, you can take those marbles out and you can count those marbles and you will find that there's 208 marbles there. In other words, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what society's doing. It doesn't matter anybody else's perspective on how many marbles are in the jar. There's either 208 in the jar or there's not. Objective truth. And that's exactly the kind of truth I'm talking about that happened on this shore on that morning. That it happened. Just as we see it. Not a fable, not a ghost, not an apparition. The resurrection is based on objective fact. Either the tomb is empty or it is not. E either the disciples are lying or they are not. Either they ate breakfast with Jesus or they didn't. And if they did, if it's true, and I base my entire life on the reality of what happened on the shore that morning. Do you? Maybe that's what you've been missing. In all your pursuit of happiness, chasing after the world, what the world says will bring you happiness. Maybe, maybe what you truly find, where you truly find purpose and meaning in life, maybe it's in an empty tomb. Maybe faith in Jesus, believing, is what you've been searching for all your life. So do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Secondly, do, do you love him more than these? Jesus starts out in his conversation. The first question he asks, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What these was he talking about? Was he, was he talking about, hey, Simon, do you, do you love me more than fishing? Some theologians kind of take that position. Hey, hey Peter, do you, do you love me more than these other disciples? It's possible too. Peter, do you love me more than your own life, your own, your own self-preservation? 
Peter, do you love me more than trying to protect your own, to protect yourself? Do, do, do you love me that much? I think all of it's true. I think it's fishing. I think it's disciples. I think it's his own life. I think all of it fits because when we follow Jesus, we have to love him more than mother and father and son, daughter and brother and sister. He becomes priority one. Nothing else can become first. Jesus is first, always. And everything else works itself out. Do you love him more than these? You fill in the blank of what these are. What, what do you truly love? What, what are you most excited about in your life? Third, first of all, do you believe that he's alive? Second, do you love him more than these? More than money, more than security, more than family, more than career, more than life itself? When we, when we put our faith in Jesus, that's the life he called us to. That we love him more than all of these, whatever these means to you. Whatever has your attention, whatever you are striving for, whatever your life is about, you love Jesus more than that. Third, will you allow Jesus to set you free from your past? Will you allow Jesus to finally, once and for all, deal with the failures of your past and set you free from it? Will you come to Jesus once and for all, in repentance and turning from a change of mind about, about your life, about your background, about all the things you've done wrong, will you once and for all turn away from all that, hand it all to him, and say, I need forgiveness and I need this stuff dealt with. Will you, will you do it? You know what Jesus will do? Exactly what he said he would do. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, you don't have to turn there. He says, come to me, all you who are a burden, heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am lowly and weak. And I will give you rest for your souls. I think we just need to take Jesus at his word. Look, we've all got, we've all got that stuff back there, right? I've got it, you got it, we've all got it. Every pastor standing and speaking this morning has got brokenness in their past. If they're saying anything different, they're lying to you. But I want you to know, that I am not a slave to that stuff back there anymore. I, I, don't, I don't dwell on that stuff back there anymore because this King, this Jesus, this resurrected Lord, he, he fulfilled his promise. And that promise was is when I came to him with all that stuff and I confessed all that stuff and I let go of all that stuff, he took that stuff away and he doesn't even bring it up anymore. If it comes up, it's because of me, not because of him. Do you want that? I would imagine that you do. I would hope that you do. Because you've probably lived long enough now to know that that nothing you do is helping to erase that stuff back there. Finally, do you love him enough to, to fulfill his purpose in your life? Jesus didn't save you and redeem you to simply give you a ticket to heaven and make sure you have a res reservation there. So that we can just kind of live the way we want to in this, in this life and, and have the understanding that one day it's all going to be okay and I'll be in heaven. That's not, that's not what Jesus set you apart for. Jesus set you apart for kingdom work. Jesus set you apart for something greater than yourself. Jesus set you apart for an incredible, amazing, adventurous journey called the Great Commission. 
We've got to make disciples of all nations. His purpose in you is not just going to heaven. That's the icing on the cake. The cake is doing the work that he's called us and empowered us to do now. And guess where I find my greatest joy? Yes, I love my family. Yes, I find incredible joy. But the what God has wired me to do in the kingdom of God, I find incredible joy in serving my king. Maybe that's a missing element in your life that you've never taken up that role as disciple and have truly followed Jesus into the mission that he's called you to and not only called you to, but has empowered you to do. Spiritually gifted you to do. Your purpose may not be exactly the same as Peter's. Make no mistake about it, you have purpose in the kingdom. How do I know all this is true? How do I know that that all of that I've just said, that everything that I say in and every week, how do I know objectively that this is true? Because either the tomb is empty or the tomb has a body. And the amazing thing about this morning is, the objective truth of this morning is, is that the tomb is empty. The world has never been the same since. It will never be the same any time in the future, in eternity future, because of what happened at that tomb on this particular morning. All that is really left is for you to put your faith where you know you need to put it. If you're not a disciple of Christ at the time, Easter's more than bunnies and chocolates and finding eggs. That's what the world's thinking about Easter this morning, a lot of folks. Easter's nothing more than a bunny. My goodness, if Easter's not more than a bunny, then we are people most miserable. No, it's much more than that. And any time you put your faith there, if you haven't already, any time that you recognize the truth as it just is glaringly in your face, Jesus is in fact alive and that demands a response from you. Disciples of Jesus are those who put your faith in him. Doesn't that require us to be engaged in what Jesus has called us to? Isn't it time to move on from our past? Isn't it time to finally leave that with him? And find the joy and peace that Jesus has been promising you over and over again that you've yet to find because you're anchored to your past? I think now's the time to respond. Father in heaven, you're awesome and mighty beautiful and holy. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness that you never deserved. Father, as we, as we continue in worship here, may the folks who are out there under the sound of my voice through technology confess their sins, turn from their old life, put their faith in you, and be changed forevermore. For those who've already done that, may they be set free from their past. And Father, may they live in purpose, the purpose you've given us, to be your ambassadors to a world that is desperately in need of truth and joy and peace. Father, we love you and we thank you for our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 